Patrick Mahomes, as great as he is and has been, will never, ever catch and pass the GOAT, Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. Never, ever. Here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 99, in honor of Joy Taylor's Hall of Fame brother, Jason Taylor, a man I got to work with at ESPN, a good man and a great pass rusher. This, as always, is the un-undisputed, everything I cannot share with you during Undisputed. Today, I will tell you why Patrick Mahomes will never, ever catch Tom Brady. It's already over for Patrick Mahomes. Today, I will take you inside what it was like for me to be a guest on my brother Lil Wayne's podcast. I'll also tell you what I think was the greatest Super Bowl ever played the all-time greatest featuring a man I now work closely with. I'll also answer several of your questions. One about whether I'd rather have Patrick Mahomes or Dak Prescott. Are you kidding me? Give me a break. And if I'd ever want to be a guest on Celebrity Jeopardy, our favorite show is Jeopardy. Ernestine and my favorite show is Jeopardy. No way would I ever want to be on Celebrity Jeopardy. I'll tell you about that in just a few minutes. But finally, I will finish today with how my week of COVID quarantine last week made me realize just how scary much Hazel means to me. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. So in this week's calm before the Super Bowl storm, I want to get this off my chest and on the record, please. Patrick Mahomes, as great as he is and has been, will never, ever catch and pass the GOAT. Thomas Edward Patrick Brady Jr. Never, ever. In fact, it's already over and done. No way, Jose, can you see by the dawn's early light. No way. It's over. It's it's uncatchable. It's undebatable. So let me explain. Let's start with this. Tom Brady won his first six Super Bowls in New England with game-winning drives in the fourth quarter or overtime. That is impossibly, uncatchably, all-time great. Then, of course, he went to Tampa during the pandemic and lifted a 7-9 and team from the season before all the way up to a Super Bowl championship over Patrick Mahomes, 
a game in which Patrick Mahomes played very poorly, much worse than any of the 10 Super Bowls Tom Brady played. In Patrick Mahomes' first three Super Bowls, I dare you to go look at this, he has yet to play one spectacular signature Tom Brady-esque Super Bowl game. Not one 300-plus yard passing game does Patrick Mahomes have in his first three Super Bowls. He doesn't have one game that, that you in the end would say is significantly better than Tom Brady's two quote-unquote worst Super Bowls, the second Eli Super Bowl and the 13-3 win over the Rams. Tom Brady averaged, think about this, he averaged 304 passing yards per game in 10 Super Bowls, 304 per game. In three Super Bowls, Patrick Mahomes has averaged 246 yards passing. Still no 300-yard passing game yet for Patrick Mahomes. Look, I certainly respect what Patrick has done, especially in this year's playoffs. Remember, during this regular season, he had a career-high 14 interceptions, just one off what Dak led the league with a year ago with 15. But then he cleaned up his act. Haven't seen any left-handed passes through the playoffs. I haven't seen any no-looks behind the backs, through the legs. He went up to Josh Allen and beat Josh Allen at Josh Allen. I thought Josh slightly outplayed him, but Patrick didn't turn the football over, and Patrick prevailed. Then Patrick went to Baltimore last Sunday to my chagrin. He had a sensational first half. Even though he threw for only 69 yards in the second half, he did not turn the football over. He has yet to lose a single turnover in the three-game playoff run up to this Super Bowl. He said after the game, he plays different now. He has learned to, as he said, his words, manage the game, as in be a game manager, as in Just don't give it to the other team. Just make the right play at the right time. Whatever the defense gives you, take it. Don't force it. Just take it and take it and take it all the way to the Super Bowl. I respect that greatly. Patrick Mahomes comes across as a good kid, an exceptional leader of men. He always says and does the right things. I honor that. In fact, he's becoming that one guy that Tom Brady used to be, that one guy in big games you don't bet against. And I don't think I'm going to bet against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. I am leaning toward picking Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs to beat the San Francisco 49ers again in the Super Bowl. But now, if you would, look a little harder at Patrick's three Super Bowls so far. Late third quarter against the 49ers the first time around. He threw a horrendous interception. 
They were down 20 to 10 at the time. Early fourth quarter, same game. An even worse interception. What are you doing, kid? Down 20 to 10. Got to be third and 15 at Kansas City's 35 with seven minutes and 13 seconds left in the game. Down 20 to 10. And Patrick Mahomes got away with throwing a punt to Tyreek Hill. Throwing a punt. Had a pass rusher in his face. And he kind of no-looked it, not by choice. As the only way out of it. He just flung it up into the deep flat, hoping Tyreek would be somewhere out there. And Tyreek had to stop, reverse field, come back, and all but wave for a fair catch to catch that punt thrown by Patrick Mahomes. 44 yards that play went and got them out of Super Bowl jail. All of a sudden, the floodgates opened. And in the last seven minutes, as you recall, Patrick and company scored 21 points. Wow. Down 10 to up 11. Boom. Kaboom. Went Jimmy G. He was very lucky. Patrick was that the opposing quarterback was Jimmy Garoppolo, who in the fourth quarter went 3 of 11 for a grand total of 36 yards. Threw an interception. Missed Emmanuel Sanders late in the game. Wide open at the goal line. So Patrick ended up throwing for 246 yards in that game with two touchdowns and two interceptions. QBR of 64, that scale of 0 to 100, just somewhat above average. Then came the fateful Brady game. All I hear is, he had no offensive line. Heck, in half of Tom's Super Bowls, he had no offensive line. You just learn to get rid of the ball quicker. You figure it out on the fly. You dink and dunk until you finally tire out the pass rush enough until they keep saying, we almost got there, we almost got there, almost got there. And then you start hitting them deeper and deeper. You figure it out. Patrick could not figure it out. It was 31 to nine Tampa. Zero touchdown passes from Patrick. Two more interceptions from Patrick. An awful game against the GOAT that disqualifies him forever in surpassing the GOAT. The GOAT beat him head-to-head. The GOAT also beat him head-to-head, as you recall, at Arrowhead, Patrick's house in an AFC championship game in which Tom Brady, in overtime, after the Patriots won the toss, converted three straight third and tens. It's impossibly great. It's hard enough to convert one, let alone two, let alone three straight third and tens on the game-winning drive. Beat him head-to-head twice in huge playoff games, an AFC championship game and a Super Bowl. It's over and it's done. Never catch him. You stunk against him in ways Tom never stunk in any of his 10 Super Bowls. 
and then last year against Philly. Close game, became something of a weird sort of fourth quarter shootout. Chiefs prevailed over the Eagles 38-35. to Patrick threw three touchdown passes without an interception, did not turn the ball over one time, had a very high QBR just because he was so efficient in the game. 97 was his QBR. But he threw for a grand total of 182 yards against a leaky, flammable, torchable Eagles defense that Dak Prescott, just a few weeks earlier against, had thrown for 347 yards and three touchdowns. I still don't know how the Eagles got there. It's because, obviously, Brock Purdy got hurt on the opening series of the NFC Championship game at Philadelphia, or the 49ers would have gone. But Patrick could muster up only 182 yards passing against that defense that completely collapsed this year, as you saw, losing six of its last seven. Think how much Patrick benefited from Jalen's one huge mistake in that game. Jalen Hurts. He just lost the handle. Nobody touched him. He lost the handle. I don't know what happened. He lost the handle. And the ball just happened to bounce perfectly up into the hands of Nick Bolton, who scooped it and scored with it. A defensive touchdown. How much did Patrick benefit in last year's Super Bowl from 158 yards, 158 yards rushing? Almost as many rush yards as you threw for. I don't know. Not all that impressive against that defense. Really? And what about the punt return in the fourth quarter that broke it open? Kadarius Toney now in the doghouse for the Chiefs. He went 65 yards on a punt return all the way down to the five-yard line. Did Patrick do No, he didn't do that. Had nothing to do with that. Cashed it. Nothing to do with it. Benefited from it. Nothing to do with it. Huh. I look at Tom Brady's numbers. Four times in 10 Super Bowls, he went way over 300 yards passing. He had a 328 against the Legion of Boom. He had a 354 in his second Super Bowl, which became a shootout against Carolina in Houston. I was there. 354, and my man Keyshawn Johnson on Undisputed keeps telling me, oh, first three Super Bowls, Brady was a game manager. It's all defense. What? I'll give you the first one against the St. Louis Rams. I'll give you that one. Although Tom at the end completed five straight passes as a first-year starter to lead that team all the way down the field to a 49-yard field goal by Adam Vinatieri that won it at the buzzer. That's all he did. Game manager? Go look at that tuck rule game. They shouldn't have won it, but go look at what Tom did in the snow. Go look at the third quarter and the fourth quarter. Go look at what happened. Tom Brady was extraordinary in that game. Yeah, he managed to beat the then Oakland Raiders. That's what he did. He managed to do that, but he wasn't game managing. He was spectacular in that game, spectacularly clutch. 354, MVP, second Super Bowl, game managing? High scoring? Really? 
32 to 29, another walk-off field goal by Adam. Then how about 466 yards against Atlanta in the 28 to 3 comeback? Yeah, it took overtime, but 466. And then how about the loss to the Eagles when Tom threw an all-time playoff record 505 yards passing? 505? 33 points, and you didn't win it? That's why I say Bill Belichick is overrated. I keep saying it, but how could you allow the Eagles' backup quarterback, Nick Foles, to score 41 while you doghoused Malcolm Butler, who had played more snaps than any player on your defense during the regular season and the earlier playoff games? And then for no apparent reason that we know of, very mysteriously, suspiciously, Belichick just said, no, you can't play? For, for what reason? I, I still don't know. Tom throws for 505 in that game and puts up 33 and loses 41 to 33. Bill cost him that one. So that's four times in four Super Bowls that Tom went well over 300 yards, over 400, over 500. Tom, in his Super Bowl games, 21 touchdowns to six interceptions. Patrick so far is five to four, five touchdowns to four interceptions. It, it's, it's over. Just forget about it. Dismiss it. Don't even begin to touch it. Don't go there. Blasphemy, sacrilegious. I'm sorry. This just makes my blood start to curdle at the very notion that anybody could suggest that somehow Patrick Mahomes is on a career arc to catch and pass the GOAT. It is the over is what it is. Over, out, and done. Respect you, Patrick, but you got no chance. So the other day, I did something I've never done. I reversed roles with my brother, Lil Wayne. And instead of him being my guest, as he is every Friday on Undisputed, 1130 Eastern, in studio, I was a guest on his podcast on Apple Music. Happened this past Monday. Apple Music Studios, not too far from where I live on the west side of Los Angeles. Down in Culver City. They are spectacular. Wayne's studio for his podcast is spectacular. Eye candy, amazing, huge, great staff. And Wayne takes this podcast over. He's different than you might see him as my guest on Undisputed because he goes into show mode. He goes into performance mode, concert mode, stage mode, and just takes it over. 
So I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to work. I waited outside his studio and watched through the glass as he recorded what they call some liners, some setups, some intros and outros. And then his staff said, okay, it's time. I blow through the door. He comes all the way around the set, gives me a big hug. Here we go. We got no real plan. I sit down. I put the headphones on. I hate headphones. I don't have any headphones on here. I don't like the sound of it because you can sort of hear your voice echoing in your psyche. I never watch back first, uh, uh, undisputed. I never watch anything that we do in the morning. I, I don't ever look back at anything I've ever done on first take or cold pizza. I just don't. I, I've told you before, I'm just as real as I can be. And if I start breaking down tape of myself, I fear I'll turn into an actor. Like, oh, I should have grimaced there, or I should have chuckled, or I should have shaken my head, or laughed out loud, or this or that, and it becomes too stagey for me. So I don't want to watch myself. I don't like to watch myself. I'm a raging perfectionist, and I would pick myself to pieces and probably not be able to do tomorrow's show if I broke down today's. So there's something about putting on the headphones that sort of contains me in my own head and I can actually start to pick apart what I'm saying because it's sort of echoing in my brain. Sometimes I release one side of the headphones and kind of stick it behind my ear so I can hear the natural sound coming across the table. But Wayne had his headphones on, I kept mine on. There were, it seemed like five camera people around holding handheld video cams, maybe still shot cams. I don't know. They're, they're just shooting like crazy. But you tune that out. I locked in on Wayne, pretty far from me across the table, like 10, 12 feet across. It's a huge table. There was no official intro. It just felt like kind of a cold open which I wasn't quite ready for. And he's just like, how you feeling? And I just blurt out, my heart's still hurting because this was Monday and I just watched what had happened to Lamar Jackson on Sunday at Baltimore. And I just start spilling as I would out in the hallway to Wayne about how I believed heart and soul in Lamar all season long. I picked the Ravens to beat the Cowboys in the Super Bowl. I just thought they were clearly the best team from the start. I thought this year would belong to Lamar. I picked him to be the MVP of the regular season, which he will be. But I also picked him to be the Super Bowl MVP. So I'm gushing and spilling because it hurt my, my heart down to my soul to watch Lamar self-destruct against Mahomes as he tried to out Mahomes Mahomes. The whole second half, he's trying to go bombs away, and if he could have just connected one time with Odell, one more time with Zay, just one, it's, it's a one-play game. If Zay can hang on to the ball and get it to break the play and get across the goal line, 
all of a sudden it's 17 to 14 early fourth quarter. I think we have a different conversation, but Lamar, bless him, fell to two and four in the playoffs. And I knew it was coming, the onslaught, the fallout, the negativity. See, he can't throw. See, he's just a running quarterback who couldn't even run against the Chiefs. No, he's way more than that. He's a two-time MVP. But I can't defend having two one-seeds and losing home playoff games. So I'm just gushing and just talking. And suddenly we're just off to the races. No plan. We talked for 90 straight minutes before they finally had to stop us. There's no structure. I think he asked me, I don't know, two questions in 90 minutes. Look, I've told you before, I rarely talk sports with anybody else. I'll admit it, I'm a sports snob. I feel like I just know too much. I'm just too sports savvy. I'm too knowledgeable. I don't suffer sports fools lightly. But Wayne, I talk sports with. Dwayne Michael Carter Jr. is deep smart when it comes to sports and life. We talk sports and we text sports constantly. He is my equal in my eyes. Someday, I should put together a book of just our texts back and forth. They're sort of, can you top this text feeding off each other? Someday I I should do that. I've told you before that my wife Ernestine and I, every month or two, go out to see Wayne at his place out in the valley here in L.A., We just go to talk. We don't go to eat. Heck, we we don't even go to pee because we don't use the bathroom, rarely. Maybe Ernestine might before we leave, but last time we were there for four hours, nobody peed. We just talk. With Ernestine, we have to watch the sports. We lose her, but we talk a little sports and a lot of life, a lot of music, a lot of TV, and I just forget where I am, and that's what happened on Wayne's podcast. I, I literally just lost myself. We were just feeding off each other, just riffing for 90 minutes. When it was over, I kind of shook my head and said, God, I don't know what that was. Walked out. My producer's with me, Tyler Korn. I kind of shook my head and said, that wasn't that great. All we did was talk football. And Tyler said, no, 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 no. They, the staff, loved it. According to Tyler, they were all saying, oh, it's the best one we've ever done. Maybe they were just saying that. I don't know. But I had lost track of what was happening because I was too in it to step back from it and see what it was. So now I'll share with you 
our text exchange after the podcast. I was on my way home with Tyler Korn in a car service car. And Wayne texted, thanks again, brother. I appreciate it with three exclamation points. And then he, he wrote, too organic and perfect. So the operative word there was organic, as in it just went wherever it was going to go. And I texted back. (laughs) I loved it so much, I forgot what I was doing. Literally lost touch. I was just talking football with you, vibing, feeding off you, free associating, free forming, freestyling football. When we finished, I wasn't sure it was any good because it might as well have been a phone conversation we might have. It was. It was just another phone conversation. Then I went on my text. But Tyler said they loved it because it was real. All I know for sure is I sure had fun. Thanks for making it happen. Love you. And he wrote back one more time. Perfect as usual. Love you, man. Okay. That podcast publicly will sum up my relationship with Wayne. That's who we are and what we do. We mostly just talk about sports and the life around sports, the life beneath sports, the life between the lines of sports. That's who we are. So see for yourself or hear for yourself. This is a question from Gregory from Glen Falls, New York. What is the greatest Super Bowl of all time? Aha. Uh-huh. Very simple, but very complicated, and a very good question. Made me think. So, bear with me on this. I'm going to go way old school to start with. I must mention the Super Bowl that was played on January the 12th of 1969 because it was the most significant Super Bowl ever played. It was Super Bowl three. It was the AFL champion versus the NFL champion. And the NFL champion was an 18-point favorite over the cuddly little underdogs, the Jets from the AFL. And somehow the Jets won 16 to 7. Most significant game ever played because it launched the AFL into a merger with the NFL from which we all still benefit to this moment. And it launched the career of a man I got to know very well, Joe Willie Namath, Broadway Joe. 
the one and the only. I'd already started my jinx rituals at this point in my life as I watched this game. I'm old enough to have watched this game. I don't know what possessed me, but somehow there was a little portable TV in my mom's room and I'd watched some previous game on it and the team I was rooting for won. So I thought, because I loved Namath so much, I loved him so much, I had a poster of Joe Namath on my wall alongside my Muhammad Ali poster. A poster of Joe dropping back to throw as a jet in his white cleats with his hair flipping out from under his helmet the Joe Namath who had beaten my Oklahoma Sooners in an orange bowl killed me. But I love me some Namath because he was not afraid. He shattered all the molds. He did it his way, a way that nobody had ever done. Old school became new school because of Joe. And yet, I look at what happened in that Super Bowl. As I watched, I, I actually was, was lying on the floor of my mom's room, right in front of her little portable TV, the head of the bed. I just laid on the floor and watched it by myself, rooting my brains out. As the hopeless underdogs beat the big, bad, bully Baltimore Colts, 16 to 7. Joe was not spectacular, but he was the Super Bowl MVP. He threw for 206 yards that day. No touchdowns, but no interceptions. But what that game is best known for is that the week before, sitting with, I don't know, three or four reporters, because there weren't many covering those games in those days, poolside in Miami, Joe guaranteed victory, then backed it up in another interview guaranteed and there's that famous picture of him running off the field with his index finger up in the air he pulled it off Joe Namath is in the Hall of Fame because of that game there's only one player in the Hall of Fame who's actually a one game Hall of Famer and it's Joe Willie Namath and he belongs he was a great thrower of the football but he got hurt both his knees got wrecked I got to know him when he came out here in L.A. to play for the Rams when he was just a shell of himself, a pathetic shell of himself. He made five Pro Bowls. He threw 173 touchdown passes, but 220 interceptions. He was the original gambler. Four times Joe Namath led the NFL in interceptions. And his overall record as a starting quarterback was 62-63-4. and four. So he lost one more game than he won, and he's in the Hall of Fame where he belongs. Most significant game ever to launch a league and a career was that game. But it's not the greatest Super Bowl ever. I just needed to pay homage to it.
the greatest collection of talent I ever saw on one football field, Hall of Fame talent. It was a game I covered in my earliest days as the columnist at the Dallas Morning News. This was January 21st of 1979, Super Bowl 13. Steelers beat us that day because they were a little better than us. Steelers 35, Cowboys 31. It was a great game to watch. It did not have a photo finish or a classic ending. They were ahead 35 to 24. Roger Staubach went to Drew Pearson for a late touchdown. 35 to 31. But each team had nine Pro Bowlers that year. The Steelers were represented in that game by 15 Hall of Famers, including front office and coaches. Cowboys represented in that game by 10 Hall of Famers, front office, coaches, and players. So that meant 25 people went from that game into the Hall of Fame. There's just never been anything like it. But greatest game? No, can't do that. Greatest offensive photo finish game was the Montana game against Cincinnati. I was there, Super Bowl twenty-three, also in Miami. That was 39 seconds left, Montana, to John Taylor. 10 yards for the game winner. 20-16, 49ers over Bengals. All-time photo finish. But not the greatest game. I must mention what happened January 27th of 1991. That would be Super Bowl 25. I was there in Tampa. And it launched my hate of field goal kicking. How can you decide a game, let alone a Super Bowl game, with this gimmick known as field goal kicking between this giant H of an upright? That was Scott Norwood from 47 yards wide right. The game was decided after all those mighty warriors fought it out all the way down to four seconds left out of 60 minutes. Scott Norwood decided the game with one wayward swing of his right leg wide right from 47 yards. I hate field goal kicking. It should have been abolished from the game a long time ago. Of course, I must mention, before I get to the games, the three dynastic Super Bowls played by my team in the 1990s. Michael Irvin's team, Troy Aikman's team, Emmitt Smith's team, Jimmy Johnson's team, Jerry Jones's team. Utter domination, Super Bowls 27, 28, and 30. Great for Cowboy fans. Not so great for fans in general. And now we hit the Tom Brady games. Super Bowls 36, 38, 39. Here we go. All the way through 55. Ten of them. They're all great. I mentioned. 61 in New England, he won with game-winning drives in the fourth quarter overtime. He lost the first Eli Super Bowl 
to the Giants after he drove his team 75 yards and hit Randy Moss with a short touchdown pass that gave them a 17, excuse me, a 14 to 10 lead. 14 to 10. So now Eli needed a touchdown, not a field goal, a touchdown. And Bill Belichick's defense allowed Eli Manning to go 75 yards for a touchdown, a touchdown pass to Plaxico that won it with 35 seconds left, rivaling Joe Montana's photo finish pass to John Taylor. I will give you that, Eli. The helmet catch. Pretty lucky. You closed your eyes, Eli, and you flung it as far as you could down the middle of the football field. Cardinal sin. And somehow David Tyree stuck it in his face mask. I don't know how. Somehow you won. Greatest game? Close in the ballpark, but no. No. You know, speaking of Patrick Mahomes, I look at that second Eli Super Bowl. You can argue it was Brady's worst game. He still threw for 276 yards. He threw two touchdown passes, had one interception, but his QBR was 84, scale 0 to 100. And if Wes Welker doesn't drop the late pass, we're having a different conversation. Then I'll skip down quickly to that 13-3 game over the Rams. He still threw for 262. QBR was low. That was by far his lowest QBR, like off the charts lower, 24. But look what he did in the middle of the fourth quarter. He drives him 69 yards in five plays to, for the go-ahead touchdown to go up 10-3. to And then he drives them 72 yards in nine plays for the clinching field goal with a minute and 12 left. Remember, that's Wade Phillips coaching that defense. Always a problem for Tom. Always had his number. It was Aaron Donald. It was Aqib Tlaib on defense. It was Marcus Peters on defense. It was Indomitian Sue and Brockers along with Aaron Donald rushing the passer. It was hellacious good defense coached by one of the greatest defensive minds ever. And Patrick last year was playing the Eagles defense, not, not even in the same galaxy with this defense. And Tom made all the plays he had to make to pull it out 13-3. to okay, So that's his quote-unquote worst one. But now we get to the greatest Super Bowl ever, in my humble estimation. This one took place in Glendale, Arizona, February 1st of 2015, Super Bowl 49. The Patriots trailed the Legion of Boom, featuring my man Richard Sherman, 24 to 14 going to the fourth quarter. 24 to 14 going to the fourth quarter. And in the fourth quarter against the Legion of Boom and Doom, Tom Brady threw for 124 yards and two touchdowns with no turnovers. 124 and two touchdowns just in the fourth quarter alone. And you know what happened at the end of the game. 
after Tom did all those Tom things. And New England seized the lead 28 to 24. Here came Russell Wilson, deep to curse, 33 yards, the minute and 14 left. All of a sudden, first and goal at the five, and I'm thinking, oh no. Lord help us. And Marshawn Lynch carries the ball on first and goal from the five for four yards. Hmm. Dante Hightower made the stop that saved the game at the one. Now it's second and goal at the one. 26 seconds left in the game. Obviously, the Seahawks and their fans would tell you it has to go to Marshawn. Although I would tell you back that that year from the one yard line in five chances, he was stymied four times. But maybe Pete Carroll did want to make Russell Wilson the star and make sure he won Super Bowl MVP. Maybe Daryl Bevel, the offensive coordinator, wanted to flash his Super Bowl genius. And they threw it instead of running it, as you remember. The pass was right on target to Ricardo Lockett, a six foot four inch possession receiver, right on target. But some kid from nowhere, from West Alabama or some Alabama, Malcolm Butler came literally out of nowhere on the football field and intercepted with 26 seconds left. Somehow snatched the ball right out of the grasp of Ricardo Lockett. And the Patriots won the greatest Super Bowl ever. It ended on the most shocking play in Super Bowl history. A play that left Tom Brady jumping up and down on the sidelines like a little kid that left my guy Richard Sherman and all those Seahawks cursing on their sidelines to high heaven. What have we done? What just happened? I'm not sure Richard is still processed exactly what happened, and I don't blame him. Malcolm Butler intercepted the pass, and the greatest game ended with Tom Brady winning yet another Super Bowl with a fourth-quarter performance that was certainly worthy of MVP. This is from Tom from Grand Junction, Colorado. Would you rather have Patrick Mahomes or Dak Prescott as your quarterback next season? Okay, I get it, Tom. Stick the knife in and twist it. I mean, seriously, come on. I, I, I'm going to be very serious with you. I would rather next year, from my heart, I'd rather have Cooper Rush than Dak Prescott. I've seen Cooper Rush deal at quarterback 
we would have a better chance of winning two playoff games next year with Cooper Rush at quarterback. I'd rather next year have Trey Lance at quarterback instead of Dak Prescott. I love Trey Lance coming out of the draft. And guess what? Kyle Shanahan and Mike Shanahan, two of the greatest offensive minds ever, loved Trey Lance. He got banged up. He got beat up. He couldn't get healthy. He struggled. And out of heaven into their laps fell Brock Purdy. And suddenly he was expendable, and they had to get rid of him so he wasn't a constant threat to Brock Purdy looking over his shoulder pads. They just had to clear the decks and plunge with Brock because Brock had shown them right away he got it. He got a hold of their offense and stayed healthier, obviously, than Trey Lance. And now he's a Dallas Cowboy. I would love to see Trey Lance and see what he could do next year because he has big-time ability. I think he has big-time football character, the likes of which I'm not sure number four has. He has not displayed it in big playoff games. Dak Prescott is now 2-5 and in the postseason. Dak Prescott has flamed out in three straight playoff games. Average QBR in those games of 43, scale 0 to 100. He's really stunk in all three of them. I'd much rather have Brock Purdy next year than Dak Prescott. I'd, I'd rather have Jordan Love than Dak. Much rather have Matt Stafford than Dak. I, I'd rather have Baker Mayfield than Dak. I mean, Baker keeps playing really big and big playoff games. Won one in Cleveland and lost one, and now he won a big one over Philadelphia and played great in the one that they lost narrowly at Detroit. I'll take Baker. I'll definitely take Jalen Hurts over Dak Prescott. C.J. Stroud, are you kidding me? Please, I'll take him. Anthony Richardson, we only saw a flash of him. I'll take him over Dak right here, right now. I mean, seriously, it's come to the point where, for me, Dak and Daniel Jones would be a coin flip right now. I've just seen enough of Dak Prescott. And obviously, if we go back to the question, to Tom's question, clearly, Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, Lamar, Jared Goff. Give me Jared Goff over Dak any day or night. Trevor Lawrence, yeah, I'll take him. Kyler, I'll I'll take Kyler over Dak right here, right now. I, I wasn't the biggest Justin Fields fan, but he's starting to win me over. Sometimes with his legs or his arm and his character. He's a tough kid. His clutchness. He makes big throws. I, yeah, right now, I, I'll, I'll go Justin Fields. I, I need to change my scenery in my life. You know, I got to go, go new. I, I got to go different. I got to give somebody else a chance. It, it's all about standards. I keep telling Keyshawn and Richard Sherman... My standards are NFC Championship game or bust. I'm spoiled. Lifelong diehard Cowboy fan. I I lived through Dandy Don Meredith and certainly Roger the Dodgers Staubach, Captain America, and Troy Bleepin' Aikman. I I know what that feels like. I lived through eight Super Bowl games and five Lombardi trophies. I know what that feels like. At least I used to, not for the last 29 years. I'll admit it. You got me, Tom. I am stuck with Dak Prescott. I, 
I'm pretty sure I'm stuck with him for the next 10 years because Jerry's 81. He used to be a plunger. Now he's a play it safer. Keeps talking about his mortality. I, my window could be closing. Okay. Whatever, Jerry. You, you're, you, you made your fortune plunging in the oil fields, and now you won't do the right thing and plunge when it's clearly time to plunge. Because these are the Dallas Cowboys. This is America's team. You have fans who have known the highest of highs, and now you keep hitting them with the lowest of lows. 27 to nothing down to Green Bay before halftime of a home playoff game with a possible two straight home playoff games, the next one over Detroit, to get to our first NFC Championship game in 28 years? Are you kidding? I'm supposed to live with this? I'm supposed to shrug and roll my eyes and say, next? No, I, I'm done. I'm over. I'm out. 12 and fives mean nothing to me. Three straight 12 and fives equals zero to me. You've got nothing to show for it. But Jerry's just going to play it safe. He's 82, 83, 84. He's stuck with Dak Prescott. He'll give him two more contracts. I don't know, three more contracts. Play until he's 40. He'll be the Cowboy quarterback. And I guarantee this. I'm on the record. I guarantee if Dak Prescott is our quarterback for the next 10 years, we will win zero Super Bowls in the next 10 years. You can book it. You can swallow it until it makes you sick. This is Ricky from New Jersey. Have you tried to be on Celebrity Jeopardy? Interesting question. No, I have not, and I will tell you why, Ricky. So my wife, Ernestine, and I, as I've said several times, we do watch our taped Jeopardies every Friday night, date night for us. We've been doing this for 19 years. She has said to me on several nights when I get hot, as we compete watching Jeopardy, she said several times, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get you on Celebrity Jeopardy. And I always say, no, you're not. And I'll tell you why. If I were on Celebrity Jeopardy or any kind of Jeopardy, regular Jeopardy, I would prep myself into oblivion. I would prep myself into an early grave. I would homework myself to death. To me, Jeopardy is all about the categories. So each of the two rounds, there are six categories across the board. So that's 12 plus final Jeopardy. So you have 13 categories for which you could prepare if you choose because you have no idea what those categories are going to be. And as I always tell Ernestine, if you, if you give me a board with eight or nine categories just by chance that I know, that I own, I'd be hard to beat. If you give me literature and history and mountains and rivers, and 
states, state capitals, schools, universities, and obviously sports. I'm Michael Jordan. I'm invincible. But if on any given night you give me astronomy or periodic tables or opera or African countries or any of the stand countries, science, entomology, I could go on and on, royal lineage. I, I just don't, I don't know them. I could, I could memorize them. I could study them. I could homework all those categories to death. But how much time do you have? Right now, I just, I don't have time. I barely have enough time to get ready to do this as well as five undisputeds every week. A lot of work. It's great work. I love it. It's draining. It's time-consuming. You give me those, those categories I don't know, and I'm, I'm the Detroit Lions in the second half the other night. I'm overmatched. As Ernestine sometimes says when we hear the final Jeopardy category, she says, call me a cab. Now call me Uber, but she's old school. Call me a cab. Like, I, I'm out. If, if I'm a contestant, I just say, could you please call me a cab? I'm out. Because you're going to get embarrassed because you know you don't know. You got no shot. So, if they ever ask me to be on Celebrity Jeopardy, I'm pretty sure I would opt out. Just understand, it's, it's hard to predict categories, it's hard to anticipate categories because you're dealing with the entire world and the entire universe. The categories can come from any and everywhere. I would prep myself to death. This is Oliver from East Lansing, Michigan. What big plans are there for your first weekend coming up of non-football? Ernestine will appreciate this question because I cannot tell you. It, it's, it's hard to explain just how hard football season is on any relationship, but especially mine with my wife. I mean, Monday night football and Thursday night football and then all day and all night Saturday college football and then all day and all night with a lot of show prep and social media on Sundays. Every Sunday is wall to wall. I'm over and out. And then the NBA kicks in mid-football season, and I'm, I'm not available, literally or emotionally. Yeah, I'm paid, obviously. It's my job to watch everything. And even if I weren't doing this job, I'd be watching a lot of these games because I am a sports nut. I admit it. I'm a Addicted to the drama, sports to me are the ultimate reality show, reality TV. But finally comes the first weekend in 
what, six months, where I actually have the weekend off. I don't know. I haven't looked at the NBA. I'm sure. Oh, I know. Saturday night, the Lakers and play at the Knicks. I'll, I'll watch that. I just do. I watch every game LeBron, every dribble of LeBron's career. But there's no football on Saturday or Sunday. We've had these playoff weekends where I've been wall-to-wall NFL games on Saturday and Sunday. Sorry, Ernestine, I'm out. So, I don't know. Ernestine and I might this, this weekend go to two movies. She wants to see The Beekeeper because she loves her some Jason Statham. We'll go to The Beekeeper. I still want to see American Fiction just because I'm intrigued by the concept of it, even though the reviews are mixed at best. But maybe we'll go to two. Maybe we'll just hang out a little longer together. Maybe I'll even have time on Saturday to go play nine holes of golf. And hey, on Sunday morning, for the first time since the Sunday before NFL kicked off, I'm going to church. I will conclude with this. Last week, as I told you, I had COVID. I easily could have done all five shows in studio. I was not that sick. But I did Undisputed from home those five days because obviously I did not want to infect Keyshawn or Richard or Michael or any of my other teammates I work with at FS1. But at home, I definitely was quarantined for a week. I felt like a leper for a week. I was stuck in the office bedroom that I used during the week when I can't sleep in Ernestine's room because I don't want to wake her up twice because I go to bed so early and then I get up. So I get up at two o'clock in the morning. So I just sleep in my sort of office bedroom on the week nights. I was so quarantined. I was only allowed out of that room to obviously do the show, to run on the treadmill before the show, and to lift weights on that Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in my home gym. But I was not allowed to get anywhere near Hazel. Hazel is our seven-year-old Maltese. She was supposed to be Ernestine's dog. It was Ernestine's choice to get a dog. And she selected a Maltese, actually thinking it would be a little smaller than she turned out to be. Ernestine wanted more of a what they call teacup dog, sort of a little purse-type dog. Hazel winds up maybe weighing 10 pounds. She's longer than you think. She's much stronger than you think. She's a ball of fire. She belongs in nobody's teacup. Now, trust me, 
Hazel's mission in life is to protect her quote-unquote mom, Ernestine. She would die to protect her mom, Ernestine. You come near her mom, you're going to have to deal with Hazel. Every last tooth. But if I'm home, day or night, day and night, Hazel hangs out with me. Slowly but surely, she became a little more my companion than Ernestine's companion. I didn't plan it. I didn't try for it. It just happened. In fact, I actually tried not to be her quote-unquote dad. And she gravitated to me. So, last week Hazel knew exactly where I was. She knew I was in my room and she could not figure out why I could not come out. I couldn't even talk to her through the door. And it actually started to scare me how much I missed her because we are constant companions when I'm home. It just hit me like a St. Bernard would hit me what a huge part of my life this 10-pound dog has become. I, I don't even like to call her a dog. She's not a dog to me. She's way more daughter than dog to me. I don't have any kids. We don't have any kids. I've had dogs before, but never anything like this dog or daughter. I mean, every NFL and college game I watched this football scene, every, every single one of them, she watched with me at my feet in her bed, her little pink bed. I knew from the time she was a puppy, she was just different. On the weekends, when I slept in the same bed with Ernestine, we would allow Hazel to sleep with us when she was a puppy. And she would always gravitate across the bed to my side. And she would start sleeping up against my left leg through the night. Didn't bother me, felt comfortable. She was low maintenance. She just slept through the night. But one night, she was still a puppy, I suddenly got a cramp in my calf. Maybe you've had one in the middle of the night. I thought I was going to die. I was overwhelmed by the pain of it, and it felt like it would never subside. And so as I writhed in bed, Hazel started pushing against my left leg as hard as she could push because she knew I needed help. That's when she started to win me completely over. Now, every time I lift weights, every single time, she sits and watches me lift weights. And when I get to my final set, she gets up and comes over to me and anticipates me being finished and being happy 
she knows down to the set what my last set is. Chest and back days, she knows my last set is always the third set of pull-ups I do, always. And then on shoulder and arms days, she knows full well my last set will always be the third set of my rear delt flies. So it was last Friday morning. I finally tested negative. Ernestine made me take a second test just to validate, just to be sure. I waited, pins and needles in my quarantine room. She finally called me on my phone and she said, you're free. So I opened my door and here came Hazel on the dead run. I had to spring down and catch her and hold her down on the carpet because there's no way either one of us, me or Ernestine, wanted Hazel in that germicile that I'd been living in. That's her room too, but it had not yet been cleaned. So I pulled her back out into the hall and we were reunited and Hazel was so happy she was crying. She was whimpering happiness. For the moment it shook me because it hit me that she won't live forever, neither will I. And then it hit me even harder just how blessed I am to have two females who loved me in ways I was never loved as a kid growing up in Oklahoma City. Never, ever. I love you, Ernestine. I love you, Hazel. Did I ever miss you? Missing you hurt way worse than any of my COVID symptoms. That's it for episode 99. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, undisputed every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.